Ghetto. You are now beyond the ghetto. Broadcasting from the rainy city of the Lower Mainland, here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, you are now Beyond, beyond the Ghetto. Here on RadioGay.ca and podcast on iTunes. Radio Gay.ca. Radio Gay.ca. That's a revolution. Radio Gay.ca. Get down on your knees and show some appreciation. Radio Gay.ca. Today we're talking to Daniel Gothrop. He is formerly the editor of Extra West Vancouver. He is also the author of three previous books, including Affirmation, The AIDS Odyssey of Dr. Peter, and Vanishing Halo, uh, Saving the Boreal Forest. He now lives in Vancouver, and the book we're talking about today is his new one called The Rice Queen Diaries, A Memoir. He wrote this book while he was both traveling and later living as an expat in Thailand and traveling through Southeast Asia, including Vietnam. He joins us today to read some excerpts from his book and to talk about some of his insights as a self-affirmed rice queen to me, Stephen Emery, who is also a self-affirmed rice queen. <laughs> What's your favorite part of uh, the memoir? Oh, good question. Um, I... Uh, I, I think now I have to say that actually it's 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 Vietnam because um, uh, one of my good friends who's a real bibliophile didn't like it and said it was the least effective uh, of, of the whole book and uh, and I was disappointed in that because um, while it doesn't have um, a lot of sex in it, uh, especially the first of the two chapters, the point of that one uh, was was to talk about how a country is romanticized through media and through Hollywood especially, mm -hmm. tragically through Hollywood like Vietnam has been and, um, and how that, what, that what, what it's about to sort of strip that away. I don't actually do that over the course of the single chapter, it takes another one to do it, mm -hmm. but I guess I like that the most for that reason I guess, it's hard to explain and it's funny because I spent the least amount of time there but I left wanting to go back again. So this this uh, section I'm going to read from is is uh, from uh, Saigon, the trip to Saigon, um, my first trip to Vietnam, where uh, it's just happening around the end of April in uh, 2000, uh, a few days before the 25th anniversary of the end of the war, 
and uh, I'm about to um, uh, encounter to meet up with um, a lover that I'd met in London uh, eight years earlier and we had promised each other uh, that we would meet again one day in his home country and so this time I do this is how I'll start it 25 years after the end of what the locals called the American War the Communist Party's grip on the people of Vietnam was loosening the process had begun 14 years earlier with the introduction of doi moi, or openness, the Vietnamese equivalent of Mikhail Gorbachev's glasnost and perestroika. Doi moi, which was supposed to usher in a new era of freedoms for the people, did not gain the expected momentum following the collapse of the Soviet Union. But by the late 1990s, when a brief surge in the economy was followed by a recession, Hanoi was seeking a closer relationship to the West. Saigon was now Vietnam's center of trade and business, the city which, under Ho Chi Minh's name, would jumpstart the economy. But it was also a city frozen in time, the Paris of the Orient that had never quite cut its ties with the old Gallic occupiers. After a few hours here, one could see why the French might pine for the good old days, much like the Cuban exiles in Miami gushed about Havana during the Batista era, the difference being that the French were now welcome in Saigon. With its freshly painted city hall and Eiffel's famous post office, to the corner patisseries where one could sit under an awning and read Le Monde while sipping French espresso or chomping on baguettes stuffed with camembert, Ho Chi Minh City 2000 could have been Saigon circa 1952, the colonial backdrop for Graham Greene's The Quiet American. One happy coincidence of my visit to Saigon was a reunion with Tai Van Tran, the Viet Q refugee I'd met in London in 1992. The two of us had kept in contact since I'd left, and it turned out we were both visiting the land of his birth at the same time. Before flying to Southeast Asia, I had imagined the two of us standing outside Reunification Palace on Liberation Day among the masses, waving our little red flags as a procession of Socialist Republic Army tanks rolled by. Long live independent Vietnam, I would shout with Tai Van Tran. Down with imperialists and colonial exploiters. The reality, of course, was far less romantic. For one thing, this was not my first reunion with Thai. We'd met in Amsterdam two years earlier. Nor was this Thai's first return to Vietnam. He'd been back twice since 1994. Furthermore, he was not arriving alone, but with David, his English boyfriend of four years. Finally, Thai did not share my sentimental view of the milestone. For him, April 30 was merely a dark day in history that had made his flight to the West inevitable. As long as his relatives and most Vietnamese remained shackled by poverty and other effects of communist rule, the very notion of Liberation Day, to say nothing of celebrating it with throngs of co-opted tourists and pre-selected cadres in a staged rally, would seem hollow and fraudulent. Our reunion was supposed to begin in front of the Virgin Mary statue at Notre Dame Cathedral, an ironic wink at all those arguments we'd had in London about Thai being the devout Asian Catholic and I the lapsed Western one. But Ty and David had overslept after a busy day of touring, so I ended up knocking on their door at the Grand, the four-star hotel where they were staying on Don Coy Street. This famous cafe strip, whose English translation is Spontaneous General Uprising, was known as Rue Catinat during the French occupation and Tudo, Freedom, during the South Vietnamese regime. The street's current ideological name was ironic, given all the high-end business startups due to large infusions of foreign cash. The end result of my long-awaited encounter with Tai Van Tran in Vietnam was to, was to demystify, once and for all, his otherness as an Asian refugee to the West. In London, I was all too aware of the things that made him different, from the superficialities of accent and clothing to the odd combination of Roman Catholicism and flamboyant queerness. But in Saigon, 
Ty was suddenly far less exotic. He and his partner David, a tall and lanky university librarian of about my age, were, apart from an extreme difference in height, as conventional a gay couple as any I'd met. On the streets of Saigon, where I watched him in action among the locals, haggling for prices like any tourist, I realized just how Western Ty Van Tran had become. Everywhere we went, Ty attracted a lot of attention, and not just because of the two Western men walking with him. His eagerness to learn about his own country and his infectious enthusiasm turned a lot of heads. Near City Hall, he would stop to speak with young children and street people, peppering them with questions about their lives. Vendors at Ben Tan Market would turn to look as Ty, speaking loudly in English, enthused about some traditional love poem printed on scented stationery. Then there was his wardrobe. One night, Ty left the hotel wearing a high-cut pair of bright pink shorts and flip-flops for shoes, a most unseemly outfit for an adult Vietnamese male. Children laughed and pointed. Their parents glared in disapproval. Ty was oblivious. By flaunting his sexuality in Saigon, he was demonstrating a sense of entitlement, an emotional openness and confidence in his own individual worth that was completely at odds with the collectivist mores of the Socialist Republic. This was a Western way of behaving that Ty would never have adopted had he and his mother not fled Vietnam in 1981. No human rights, forced to escape, we lost so many lives. So here we are in the U.S. of A. To start a new life, it's a brand new day. Sometimes I wonder who I am, Asian or American. A lost generation searching for a home, eager to be found like words in a poem. 've been uh, my only experience of Thailand is all these OG videos which is a porn company and but they also have a tra travelogue in the middle it's quite it's quite cool mm -hmm. and uh, and you know they go down the river Kwai and things like that and there's whole sections that aren't even about sex and they're renowned for that and mm -hmm. uh, but they also they always say in there maybe it's a bit of a tourist ad that it's a paradise it's free it's wonderful and all that and then I read in the section of your book that there's this cracked down by the Thai police. Oh, oh, it was absolutely, completely, it, it, it covered the whole country. Mm -hmm. um, no, there's every indication now that since uh, the Thai Rak Thai administration came in that uh, um, Thailand could be going the way of Singapore, the way that Singapore used to be. Wow. Ironically, Singapore is, is going the other way. Singapore is opening up more. Thailand has, has entered a period in the last five years, and this is a result, I think, of the, the economic crisis of 97 where they're really taking a serious look. I mean, the government you know, authorities are taking a serious look at 
tourism and uh, and how the country is perceived. The, the the thing about Thailand that's a real paradox is that on one hand it's the land of smiles and paradise and warm welcomes and all those things and it offers everything, but at the same time there's shame. Uh, uh, Thais frown on homosexuality actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know the the guidebooks uh, talk about oh it's a very pro gay country. No, it's not. It's never been a pro gay country. There's lots of homosexuality and there's lots of you know it's it's the uh, it's the the uh, um, sex change operation capital, one of the sex change operation capitals of the world, but still Thai culture and Buddhism, um, there's no uh, overt homophobia, there's no violent homophobia, mm-hmm. but they, they pity uh, uh, gay men because they believe, well, for one thing, families find it unfortunate because they won't have grandchildren, and they feel that you won't reach nirvana mm-hmm. if you're gay. Hmm. So this is something that, that a lot of people who just have those kind of guidebook kind of notions about Thailand don't realize. And so this crackdown was part of something that uh, Thailand wanted to attract, you know, quality tourists. And, uh, and they want to send out a message that, um, you know, they want uh, to return to more traditional values. It doesn't always succeed, of course, because they have to deal with the realities of business. But it is there. There's a very, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was popular especially outside of the cities, mm-hmm. in the country. Uh, people knew that this was happening. These crackdowns were happening. You know, the Thai rack tie got more votes. Yeah. Wow. Like, my jaw was on the ground when I was reading that. Uh, and it, it's a great place in, in the memoir. It's, it's, not, it's not too far from the... It's kind of the climax of the memoir. Yeah, and that was the sobering part. It's like, well, here I am in paradise, and here's what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. so much for paradise. You felt your the narrator felt a, a certain helplessness uh, mm. watching. You were right in the bathhouse when I rated it. Yeah, well, I imagined if this if this happened in our country, of course, and that's when I got my Western hackles up. Well, we'd be doing the whole you know uh, protest thing, and we'd be right out there, and uh, you know, and like uh, we did with Calgary recently. Exactly, it's yeah. a good example. The press, the the gay press, very powerful, you know, influential. But there, no. They just it did nothing happened. Well, Doesn't even register on the meter. It's like this is a, this is the way this country is, and and the ties themselves were very. I mean, again, there was a kind of an element of, uh, I don't know that I'd go so far as to say closetry, because um, many men who are gay and who are in Thailand are perfectly happy with their sexuality, but they still don't talk about. It. They don't make it overt because there is still a, a stigma that that um, on television. Uh, gays are katuis. Katuis are are are, uh, are lady boys, mm. and that's the uh, perception. That's very interesting. It's very similar to Japan in a lot of ways, although and that's more of a modern Japan. Traditionally, Japan mm-hmm. was very gay positive all through their culture mm-hmm. until yeah. the black ships came and right. changed everything. The Europeans, but. Um, I, I read, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with Friday.com, the website that covers Asian issues. Yes, I am very familiar with it. I have something to say about that too, but you go on. Well, uh, I, I read, it sounds like just reading over, and I get all the news reports, uh, it sounds like a sort of rah, 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 civil rights are moving. I get the feeling that civil rights in the Western style are moving rapidly across Asia. You know, Singapore has had a new thing, mm-hmm. Hong Kong. And then there's, you know, it's forward, back, forward. But what do you think of that idea that, you know, the civil rights are sweeping across Asia? Do you believe? Well, I talk a little bit first before I do, just to remember mm-hmm. before I forget about Friday. You mentioned Friday.com, mm-hmm. and I, I've, I've got it on good authority that um, 
uh, uh, Friday.com was approached about uh, having a review of the Rice Queen Diaries and uh, this person who was going to do this, um, who I know well, mm-hmm. uh, um, was told that I mean, didn't get an answer at first, and then finally, after bothering them a few times, they got a, a, a sniffy reply. We're about empowering Asian people, hmm. so why would we review this book? Which to me is uh, really disappointing because um, I would think that they would look on this as good information, and uh, you know, if nothing else, good information. And here's one example of what white guys are thinking, what's on their minds, etc. And that you know, stifling dialogue or you know or, or pretending something isn't there is not really a good way of empowering people I think it's good to actually have more discussion so that's my little rant about Friday no, and that's that's an important point because I see your book as very empowering to uh, both um, sides and the fact that it's honest about the complexities of the relationship between the two different yeah. cultures or many right. different cultures yeah. but about this idea of, 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 of um, uh, civil rights and in the Western human rights um, Spreading throughout Asia, uh, that may be true in terms of like their, their like restrictions. Uh, even in, even in Singapore, are loosening a little bit. But uh, I'm always I'm always interested to see how it translates locally, uh, because I do talk a little bit in the book as well about Dennis Altman's idea of global queering. Okay. You know, and the idea that uh, that. That there is this mono-American culture based on money, Good. that is just to kind of, you know, it spread its it spread its wings around everywhere, right? Um, true to a certain extent, but as again as I found out in Thailand, uh, doesn't scan in a lot of places there because they they you know they interpret things so differently. Um, so uh, I think that again in different Asian countries there's, there are different issues that people mm-hmm. have to deal with. Um, I know in Thailand right now, one big one, and we're talking on World AIDS Day, mm-hmm. I know, uh, is mm-hmm. the fact that the government has just put no money into uh, safe sex campaigns for gay men. And um, uh, HIV infection rates in Thailand in the last four years have gone up, according to a piece in the nation where I worked, just read, mm-hmm. have gone up uh, more than 50%. And so they're having to deal with the fact that the government that they're they're getting foreign they're getting foreign donors to give them money and they're being funneling through foreign donors US donors who are being run by a kind of a Christian kind of agenda where the advertising they do to this target group of gay men can't have two Asian guys you know naked together kissing whatever right mm-hmm. um, so Kind of going about this a bit of a roundabout way. It's mm-hmm. it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge um, there still, like in Thailand at least, to uh, to get the same idea of human. It's very slow. It's very incremental.
section takes place on Koh Samui, where um, uh, the narrator has decided to take a look at the beaches of Thailand, which are, of course, are world famous. By February 13th, I had booked a date for the next night with Newt, a 28-year-old Thai guy from Pattaya who was running a small beach bar in Chowang. As much as I liked Newt, the date was not my idea. Newt's Farang boyfriend from London, 38-year-old Mark, was on Samui at the same time. I wasn't interested in playing mistress. But Newt insisted on visiting my bungalow and couldn't wait until Mark went home the following week. So there it was, a dirty date on Valentine's Day. When I saw Newt at Christie's pub the night before our scheduled rendezvous, he was just leaving for the Green Mango Disco and wanted me to join him there. I begged off, telling him that I wanted to stay at Christie's and watch Kosamui's best drag show. As a result of that decision, I never did hook up with Newt the next night. A few minutes after he left Christie's, I was sitting at the bar when a glittering troop of Thai ladyboys, or katuis, hit the stage. Forming a chorus line of pistol-packing Bond girls, they lip-synced a flawless rendition of The Man with the Golden Gun. Cubby Broccoli himself would have appreciated their dazzling reenactment of the opening credit sequence for his 1974 movie, which was filmed in Thangna province long before most of these Katuis were born. The performance was appropriately ironic, given the context of sex tourism that defined nightlife in Chowang. The bar captain that night was a 22-year-old northerner named Chai. Dressed all in black, he was five foot six, with a broad jawline and high cheekbones typical of his native Chiang Rai. From the moment I saw his face, all thoughts of committing Valentine's Day adultery with Newt vanished. Chai's sparkling beauty and his upcountry earnestness when we chatted stood out from the crowd of jaded queens and con artists which, if a brief survey of the beach and main drag that day were any indication, seemed to infest the Chowang scene. So, when I invited him out for a drink at the end of his shift, I was thrilled when he accepted. After leaving Christie's, we walked down a dusty soy off the main street and passed by an outdoor restaurant where a group of ladyboys recognized Chai. They bolted from their chairs, whooping and hollering. Chai smiled. He'd brought me here to show off his prize for an catch, just like beer a young student had done at a shopping mall on my last day in Bangkok. One Katui ran up with a glass of ginger ale and ice, imploring me to take a sip. I politely obliged. So did Chai. The Katui and her friends all seemed to regard us as a couple, even though I'd only met Chai a few minutes earlier. Sitting behind me on the motorbike as we rode back to the bungalow, Chai wrapped his arms tightly around my chest. Slowly, he murmured in his thick northern accent, his lips brushing my neck when my driving made him nervous. Until wit, I'd never been fucked by someone shorter than me, but after that night's romp with Chai, I wondered why not. The next morning we rode to a quiet beach north of Chowang for lunch. Then, dropping off Chai at his home, I asked him out for dinner that night. He wasn't working, so he was pleased that I asked, although Valentine's Day was culturally irrelevant to him. When I arrived to pick him up, I was shocked by the squalor of his apartment. Chai and his friend Puka had been living there for several months. The place looked as though the last tenants had just moved out and that Chai and Puka were living among the leftovers. Dust, filth, and piles of abandoned boxes were everywhere. Chai, dapper and handsome in a clean white shirt and pants, was an island of beauty amidst all the trash. I could tell by the way he sat cross-legged on the floor, oblivious to the clutter as he carefully combed his hair, that he probably grew up in Shanghai this way. But I put those thoughts aside as I took him and his friends out for supper at the Swordfish, followed by drinks and a Thai cabaret show at the Pink Lady. When the two of us returned alone to the bungalow, I sang in the shower while Chai got ready for bed. But by the time I slipped under the covers with him, something had shifted in the air. 
When I slid my naked body beside Chai's, he turned away. When I asked what was wrong, he wouldn't speak. What had I done? I leave you now, said Chai. I go home. What? You can't go home now. It's 2 a.m. It was dark outside. Chowang was a long ride away, and I was too tired to get back in the motorbike. More to the point, I was disturbed by Chai's sudden mood swing. Come on, Chai, I pleaded. Just go to sleep. I'll take you home in the morning. We'll talk about it then. But there was no persuading him. He got dressed and walked out the door, heading out on foot down the same unlit country road we'd just taken on the motorbike. <clears throat> we'd just taken on the motorbike all the way back to Chowang. It wasn't what I had done that was a problem. It was what I hadn't done. Chai worked for minimum wage at Christie's, about a hundred bucks U.S. a month. If he wanted to eat well, tips and cash gifts from the foreign flings he met became important. Also, the bar was supposed to receive a 200 baht off fee, just like in the city, when I took Chai off his shift. He hadn't really finished work when I snapped him up. I hadn't given him a single baht, either for the bar or himself, in all the time we'd been together. He hadn't asked, because I suppose he thought I knew the drill. But when our second night ended and I still hadn't shelled out, he got fed up and left. Waking up alone the next morning, I felt depressed. This was my first confrontation with the rules of the tourist economy, the opening struggle in an internal dialogue about the inequality that separates most Thais from the Farang who visit their country. The good times I enjoyed with so many gorgeous Thai boys only happened because an entire infrastructure had been created to ensure that they would. Such infrastructures tend to exist in poor countries where there aren't enough better opportunities for young people to get an education or otherwise forge lives and careers within their own communities independent of foreign currency. But at this stage of my journey, I was living in a bubble of neo-colonial narcissism that didn't allow for much analysis. Here's what typically goes on inside such a bubble. A. Back home, traveling white boy, TWB, doesn't consider himself a consumer of sex because he can get it whenever he wants and, therefore, doesn't pay for it. This conveniently ignoring the fact that, back home, his Asian objects of desire are likely his status equals, if not superiors. B. Because he sees himself as objectively desirable, TWB assumes there should be no difference in how he cruises, romances, or otherwise ends up having sex with guys in Thailand. C. TWB believes that paying for sex in any form amounts to prostitution, a financial exchange that, despite his laudably liberal attitudes toward older friends who indulge, he categorizes in strictly Western, Judeo-Christian terms whose assumptions are grounded in moral judgment. D. TWB is in deep denial. Because of all of the above, he truly believes that all the hot young Thai guys he meets are interested in him only because of his wonderful personality, great looks, and stellar performance in bed, rather than, say, the fact that his whiteness, education, and possession of a plane ticket are likely indicators of relative wealth. The fact that I was unable to connect the dots between A and D guaranteed that I would make a lot of mistakes with Chai. I pick all my skirts to be a little too sexy Just like all my thoughts, they always get a bit naughty Who don't have the right approach, a right that makes a girl like me wanna hop in the road. 
good. I, I so enjoy listening to you read. Thank you very oh, much. And I uh, so enjoy reading the book. Um, have you had a reaction to that specific part? <clears throat> um, yeah, mostly good. I think I read that. I think I read that at uh, in New York. I uh, did an event um, with uh, Rafaelito C, a Filipino American author of a new novel called Potato Queen. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> we were something of a natural uh, uh, fit yeah. for a, a, a double event, and um, so we were invited by the Asian American Writers Workshop to do this uh, talk and reading, and. About 150 people showed up, and uh, 75% of them Asian Americans. And uh, I got a lot of questions about it, like just in terms of, um, um, you know, uh, what it felt like, you know, afterwards, like how I dealt with these, you know, realizing, oh, you know, my 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 answer to them was that um, you really can only do this kind of trip once. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a conscience, you can only do this kind of trip once because you 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 find out these things, and then it just you either you're either okay with that and you do it again and again, or you're not, and you just have to alter the way that you interact. Thank you for talking to us today, and uh, Daniel Grothrop, author of the Rice Queen Diaries, very enjoyable. Thanks Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And this is Stephen Emery saying to all you rice and potato queens out there, stick together beyond the ghetto on RadioGay.ca.